Chapter Two of Zone Policeman Eighty Eight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mickey Lee Rich. Zone Policeman Eighty Eight, a close-range study of the Panama Canal and its workers, by Harry A. Frank. Chapter Two. The boss and I initiated the canal zone census that very night. Legally, it was to begin with the dawning of February, but there were many labor camps in our district, and the hours bordering on midnight, the only sure time to catch him in. Up in House Forty Seven, I gathered together the Legion paraphernalia for this new occupation. Some two hundred red cards, a foot long and half as wide a surveyor's field notebook for the preservation of miscellaneous information, tags for the tagging of canvas buildings, tacks for the tacking of the same, the necessary tack hammer, the medium soft black pencil, above all the awesome legal commission, impressively signed and sealed, wherein none other than our weighty nation's chief himself did expressly authorize me to search out, enter, and question ad libitum. All this swung over a shoulder in a white canvas sack that carried memory back through the long years to my newsboy days. I descended to the town. The boss was ready. It was nearly eleven when we crossed the silent PRR tracks and plunged away into the night past great heaps of abandoned locomotives huddled dim and uncertain in the thin moonlight like ghosts of the French fiasco, dashed into a camp of the laborers' village of Cunet, pitched on the very edge of the new, black and silent void of the canal. Eighteen thick-necked negroes in undershirts and trousers gazed up white-eyed from a suspended card game at the long camp table, but we had no time for explanations. Name? I shouted at the coal-hued Hercules nearest at hand. David Providence, he bleated in a trembling voice, and the great zone questionnaire was on. We had enrolled the group before a son of wisdom among them surmised that we were not, after all, plainclothes men in quest of criminals, and his announcement brought visible relief. Twice as many blacks were sprawled in the two rooms of double-sided, three-story bunks, mere strips of canvas on gas pipes, that could be hung up like swinging shelves when not in use. Mere noise did not even disturb their dreams. We roused them by pencil jabs in the ribs, and they started up with a savage, animal-like grunts and murderous glares, which instantly subsided to sheepish grins and voiceless astonishment at sight of a white face bending over them. Now and again, open-mouthed guffaws of laughter greeted the mumbled admission of some powerful buck that he could not read or did not know his age. But there was nothing even faintly resembling insolence, for these were all British West Indians without a corrupting state nigger among them. A half hour after our arrival, we had tagged the barracks and dived into the next camp, blacker and sleepier and more populous than the first. It was a February morning before I climbed the steps of Silent 47 and stepped under the shower bath 
that is always preliminary on the zone to a night's repose a dream of earthquake holocaust and general destruction developed gradually into full consciousness at four thirty house forty seven was in riotous uproar no neither conflagration nor foreign invasion was pending it was merely the house full of engineers in the customary daily struggle to catch the labor train and be away to work by daylight when the hour's rampage had subsided i rose to switch off the light and turn in again the rays of the impetuous panama sun were spattering from them when i passed again the jumbled rows of invalided locomotives machinery reddish with rust and bound like gulliver by green jungle strands and tropical creepers by day the arch-roofed labor camps were silent and empty but for a lonely janitor languidly mopping a floor before the buildings a black gang was dipping the canvas and gas-pipe bunks one by one into a great kettle of scalding water but there are also married quarters at cunette a row of six government houses tops the ridge with six families in each house and no i dare not risk nomination to an ever-expanding though unpopular club by stating how many in a family i will venture merely to assert that when noontime came i was not well started on the second house yet carried away more than sixty filled-out cards more than two days that single row of houses endured varied by nights spent with the boss in the labor camps of lirio calibra way then one morning i tramped far out the highway to the old scotchman's farmhouse that bounds empire on the north and began the long intricate journey through the private-owned town itself it was like attending a congress of the nations a museum exhibition of all the shapes and hues in which the human vegetable grows tenements and wobbly-kneed shanties swarming with exhibits monopolized the landscape strange the room that did not yield up at least a man and woman and three or four children day after blazing day i sat on rickety chairs wash-tubs ironing boards veranda railings climbing creaking stairways now and again descending a treacherous one in unintentional haste and ungraceful posture burrowing into blind but inhabited cubbyholes hunting out squatters nests of tin cans and dry good boxes hidden away behind the legitimate buildings shouting questions into dilapidated eardrums delving into the past of every human being who fell in my way west indian negroes easily kept the lead of all of the nationalities combined negroes blacker than the obsidian cutlery of the aztecs blond negroes with yellow hair and blue eyes whose race was betrayed only by eyelids and the dead whiteness of skin and whom one could not set down as such after enrolling swarthy spaniards as white without a smile they lived chiefly in windowless six-by-eight rooms always a cheap dirty calico curtain dividing the three-foot parlor in front from the five-foot bedroom behind the former cluttered with a van-load of useless junk dirty blankets decrepit furniture glittering gewgaws 
a black baby, squirming naked in a basket of rags with an Episcopal prayer book under its pillow, relic of the old demon-scaring superstitions of voodoo worship. Every inch of the walls was decorated, after the artistic temperament of the race, with pages of illustrated magazines or newspapers, half-tones of all things conceivable, with no small amount of text and sundry languages many a page purely of advertising matter, the muscular and brooded likeness of a certain black champion rarely missing, frequently with a Bible laid reverently beneath it. Outside, before each room, a tin fireplace for cooking precariously bestrided the veranda rail. Often a tumbled-down hovel, where three would seem a crowd, yielded up more than a dozen inmates, many of whom, being at work, must be looked for later, the back calls, that is, the bete noir of the census enumerator. West Indians, however, are for the most part well acquainted with the affairs of friends and roommates, and enrollment of the absent was often possible. Occasionally I ran into a den of impertinence that must be frowned down, notably a notorious swarming tenement over a lumberyard. But on the whole, the courtesy of the British West Indians, even among themselves, was noteworthy. Of the two great divisions among them, Barbadians seemed more well-mannered than Jamaicans, or was it merely more subtle hypocrisy? Among them all, the most unspoiled children of nature appeared to be those from the little island of Nevis. You ain't no American. Yeah, I is. Why, you the very first American I ever see that was polite, which spoke badly indeed for the others, for that not being one of the virtues I strive particularly to cultivate. But, polite or not, there can be no question of the astounding stupidity of the West Indian rank and file, a stupidity amusing if you are in an amusable mood, unendurable if you neglect to pack your patients among your bag of supplies in the morning. Tropical patience, too, is at best a frail child. The dry season sun rarely even veiled his face, and there were those among the enumerators who complained of the taxing labor of all day marching up and down streets and stairs and zone hills beneath it. But to me, fresh from tramping over the mountains of Central America with twenty pounds on my shoulder, this was mere pastime. Heat had no terrors for the enumerated, however. Even in the hottest hour of the day, I came upon negroes sleeping in tightly closed rooms, the sweat running off of them in streams, yet apparently vastly enjoying the situation. Sunday came, and I chose to continue, though virtually all the zones was on holiday, and even the boss, after what I found later to be his invariable custom, had broken away from his card-lettering dwelling place on Saturday evening and hurried away to Panama, drawn thither and held till Monday morning by some irresistible attraction. Sunday turns holiday completely on the zone, even to hours of trains and hotels. The frequent passengers were packed from southern white end to northern black end with all nations in gladsome garb, bound Panama ward to see the lottery drawing and buy a ticket for the following Sunday, across the isthmus to breezy colon or to one of a hundred varying spots and pastimes. Others, in khaki breeches fresh from the government laundry in Cristobal, and the ubiquitous leather leggings of the zoner, were off to ride out the day in the jungles. 
Still others set resolutely forth afoot into tropical paths. A dozen or so, gleaned one by one from all the towns along the line, were even on their way to church. Yet, with all this scattering, there still remained a respectable percentage lounging on the screen verandas in pajamas and kimonos, old-timers, of four or five or even six years, standing who were convinced they had seen and heard and smelt and tasted all that the zone or tropical lands have to offer. Well on in the morning there was a general gathering of all the ditch-digging clans of empire and vicinity in a broad field close under the eaves of town, and soon there came drifting across to me at my labor hoarse, frenzied screams sounding strangely incongruous beneath the swaying palm-trees. "'Come on! Get down with his arm! But my time was well chosen. In the Spanish camps above the canal— still and silent with sunday men at no other time to be run to earth were entrapped in their bunks under their dwelling-place in the shade shaving exchanging haircuts washing workaday clothes reminiscing over far-off homes and pre-migratory days or merely loafing the same cheery friendly quick-witted fellows they were as in their native land even the few Italians and rare Portuguese scattered among them were inoculated with their cheerfulness. Came sudden changes to camps of Martiniques, a sort of wild, untamed creature, who spoke the distressing imitation of French, which even he did not for a moment claim to be such, but frankly dubbed Patois. Restless-eyed black men who answered to their names only at the question, Comment belle? and give their age only to those who open wide mouth and cry courage vous then on again to the no less strange sing-song english of jamaica the whining tones of those whose island trees the conquesting spaniards found bearded barbados now and again a more or less dark costa rican guatemalteco venezuelan stray islander from st vincent trinidad or guadalupe individuals defying classification but the chief reward for denying myself a holiday were the back calls in the town itself which i was able to check out of my field book many a long-sought negro i roused from his holiday siesta dashing past the tawdry calico curtains to pound him awake mere auricular demonstration having only the effect of lulling him into deeper childlike slumber the surest and often only effective means was to tickle the slumberer gently on the soles of the bare feet with some airy, delicate instrument such as my tack-hammer, or a convenient broom-handle or flat-iron. Frequently I came upon young negro men of the age, and type that in white skins would have been loafing on pool-room corners, reading to themselves in loud and solemn voices from the Bible with a faraway look in their eyes. Always I was surrounded by a never-broken babble of voices, for the West Indian Negro can let his face run unceasingly all the day through, and night, though he have never a word to say. Thus my enumerated tags spread further and wider over the city of empire. I reached in due time the hodgepodge shops and stores of Railroad Avenue, Chinamen began to drift into the rolls. There appeared such names as Carmen Watching. Cooks and waitresses living in darksome back cupboards must be unearthed. Negro shoemakers were caught 
at their stands on the sidewalks. Shiny-haired bartenders gave up their biographies in nasal monosyllables amid the slop of suds and the scrape of celluloid froth eradicators. Rare was the land that had not sent representatives to this great dirt-shoveling Congress. A Syrian merchant gasped for breath and fell over at his counter in delight to find out that I, too, had been in his native Zakle. Five Punjabis all but died of pleasure when I mispronounced three words of their tongue. Occasionally there came startling contrast as I burst unexpectedly into the ancestral home of some educated native family that had withstood all the tides of time and change and still lived in the beloved imperator of their forefathers. Anger was usually near the surface at my intrusion, but they quickly changed to their ingrown politeness and chatty sociability when addressed in their own tongue and treated in their own extravagant gestures. It was almost sure to return again, however, at the question whether they were Panamonians. Distinctly not. They were Colombians. There is no such country as Panama. Thus the enrolling of the faithful continued. Chinese laundrymen divulged the secrets of their mysterious past between spurts of water at steaming shirt bosoms. Chinese merchants, of whom there were hordes on the zone, queueless, dressed, and betailored till you must look at them twice to tell them from gold employees, the flag of the new republic flapping over their doors, the new president in their lapels, left off selling crucifixes and breastpin medallions of Christ to negro women to answer my questions. One evening I stumbled into a nest of eleven Bengali peddlers with the bare floor of their single room as bed, table, and chairs. In one corner, surmounted by their little embroidered skull caps, were stacked the bundles with which they pester zone housewives, and in another, their god, wrapped in a dirty rag against profaning eyes. Many days had passed before I landed the first zone resident I could not enroll unassisted. He was a heathen Chinese, newly arrived, who spoke neither Spanish nor English. It was Chinese Charlie who helped me out. Chinese Charlie was a resident of the zone before the days of de Lesseps, and our first meeting had insisted on being enrolled under that pseudonym, alleging it his real name. Upstairs above his store all was sepulchral silence when I mounted to investigate, and I came quickly and quietly down again, for the door had opened on the gaudy oriental splendor of a joss house where dwelt only grinning wooden aisles not counted as zone residents by the materialistic census officials. On the Isthmus, as elsewhere, John is a law-abiding citizen within limits, never obsequious, nearly always friendly, ready to answer questions quite cheerily so long as he considers the matter any of your business, but closing infinitely tighter than the maltreated bivalve when he fancies you are prying too far. In time, I reached the commissary, the government department store, and enrolled it from cash desk to cold storage. Empire Hotel, from steward to scullions, filed by me whispering autobiography. The police station, on its knoll felt like the rest. I went to jail and sat down a large score of black men and pair of European whites, back from a day's sweaty labor of road building, who lived now in unaccustomed cleanliness in the heart of the lower story of a fresh wooden building with light iron bars, 
easy to break out of if it were not that policemen, white and black, sleep on all sides of them. Crowded, old empire not only faces her streets, but even her backyards are filled with shacks and inhabited boxes to be hunted out. On the hem of her tattered outskirts and the jungle edges, I ran into heaps of old abandoned junk, locomotives, cars, dredges, boilers, some with the letters U.S. painted upon them, which sight gave some three-day investigator material to charge the ICC with untold waste, and now soon to be removed by a Chicago wrecking company. Then all the town must be done again. Back calls. By this time so wide and varied was my acquaintance in Empire that wenches withdrew a dripping hand from their tubs to wave at me with a sympathetic giggle, and piccaninis ran out to meet me as I re returned in quest of one missing inmate in a house of fifty. For the few laborers still uncaught, I took to coming after dark. But West Indians rarely own lamps. Not even the brass tax numbers above the doors were visible and as for a negro in the dark. Absurd rumors had begun early to circulate among the dark brethren. In all negrodom the conviction became general that this individual detailing, catechizing, and house-branding was really a government scheme to get lists of persons due for deportation, either for lack of work as the canal neared completion or for looseness of marital relations. Hardly a tenement did I enter, but laughing voices bandied back and forth, and there echoed and re-echoed through the building such remarks as, Well, they go send us home, Penelope, or You and Percival better hurry up and get married, Ambrosia. Several dusky females regularly ran away when I approached. One, at least, I came a-seeking in vain nine times, and found her the tenth time behind a garbage barrel. Many fancied the secret marks on the enumerated tag, date, and initials of the enumerator were intimately concerned with their fate. So strong is the fear of the law imbued by the zone police that they dared not tear down the dreaded placard, but would sometimes sit staring at it for hours, striving to penetrate its secret, or exercise away its power of evil. And now and then some bolder spirit ventured out, at midnight, with a pencil, and put tails and extra flourishes on the penciled letters in the hope of disguising them against the fatal day. Except for the chaos of nationalities and types on the zone, enumerating would have become more than monotonous. But the enumerated took care to break the monotony. There was the wealth of nomenclature, for instance. What more striking than a shining black waiter strutting proudly about under the name of Levi McCarthy? There was no necessity to ask Beresford Plangenet if he were a British subject. Naturally, the mother of Hazermanith Cumberbard Smith, baptized that very week, had to claw out the family Bible from among the bedclothes and look up the name on the flyleaf. To the enumerator, who must set down concise and exact answers to each of his questions, fifty or sixty daily scenes and replies something like these were delightful. Enumerator, sitting down on the edge of a barrel. How many living in this room? Explosive laughter from the buxom jet-black woman addressed. Enumerator on a venture. What's the man's name? He named Rasmus Eagleston. What's his metal check number? 
Lord Master, I don't know he check number. Haven't you a commissary book with it in? Lord, no, my love. Commissary book him finish already before last week. Is he Jamaican? No, him a malt rat, master. Monsteration. What color is he? <laughs> what for you ask all dem questions, master? For instance. Oh, him just a pitch darker me. How old is he? Loud laughter. La, I don't know how old him are. Well, about how old? Oh, him a right man, my love. Him a prime man. Is he older than you? Oh, yes, him older than me. And how old are you? Teed, <laughs> I don't know how old I is. I gone lost my age paper. Is he married? Quickly and with a very grave face. Oh, yes, indeed, master. I his sure enough wife. Can he read? Hesitatingly. Eh, a little, sir. Not too much, sir which generally means he can spell out a few words of one syllable and make some sort of mark representing his name. What kind of work does he do? Haughtily. Him employed by the ICC. Yes, naturally. But what kind of work does he do? Is he a laborer? Quickly and very impressively. Laborer? Oh, no, my sweet master. He just shovel away the dirt before the steam shovel. All right. That'll do it for Rasmus. Now your name. My name, Mistress Jane Eagleston. How long have you lived in the canal zone? Oh, not too long, my love. Since when have you lived in this house? Oh, we don't come to this house too long, sir. Can you read and write? No, I don't stay in Jamaica. I come to Panama when I'm small. Do you do any work besides your own housework? Evasively. Work? If I does any work, no, not any. Enumerator looks hard from her to wash tub. I, uh, I washes a couple of gentlemen's clothes. Very good, then. Now, then, how many children? We don't get no children, sir. What? How did that happen? Loud, house-shaking laughter. Enumerator, looking at watch and finding it 1210. Well, good afternoon. Good evening, sir. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Variations on the above might fill many pages. How old are you? Self-appointed interpreter of the same shade. He is how old is you? How old I are? I don't rather know my age, master. My mother never told me. St. Lucian woman, evidently about forty-five, after deep thought, plainly anxious to be truthful as possible. Eh, as twenty, sir. Oh, you're older than that. About sixty, say? About that, sir. Are you married? Pushing the children out of the way. No, not as yet, my, my sweet master. But, but we gon' be soon, sir. To a Barbadian woman of forty. Just you and your daughter live here? That's all, sir. Does your husband live here? Oh, I don't never marry as yet, sir. Anent the old saying about the partnership of life and hope. To a Dominican woman of fifty-two, toothless and pitted with smallpox, are you married? With simpering smile, not as yet, my sweet master. To a Dominican youth, how many people live in this room? Three persons live here, sir. I stand grammatically corrected. When did you move here? We removed here in April. Again, I apologize for my mere American grammar now, Henry. 
What is your roommate's name? Well, we calls him Ethel, but I don't know his right title. Peradventure he will not work this evening, and you can ask him from himself. Do his parents live on the zone? Oh, yes, sir. He has one father and one mother. An answer. Why himself, emphatically subject pronoun among Barbadians, didn't know if he'd get a job. To a six-foot black giant working at night hostler at steam shovels. Well, Josiah, I suppose you're a Jamaican. Oh, yes, boss. I'll work in Kingston ten years as a barmaid. Married? No, boss. I's not exactly married. I's living with a person. A colored family. Sarah Green, very black, has a child named Edward White, and is now living with Henry Brown, a light yellow negro. West Indian wit. A shop sign in Empire. Don't ask for credit. He has gone on vacation since January 1, 1912. Laughter and carefree countenances are legion in the West Indian ranks. Children seem never to be punished, and to all appearances man and wife live commonly in peace and harmony. Dr. O tells the following story, however. In his rounds, he came upon a negro beating his wife, and had him placed under arrest. The negro why, boss, can a man chastise his wife when she deserves and needs it? Dr. O. Not on the canal zone. It's against the law. Negro. In great astonishment. Is that so, boss? Did I never do it again, boss? On the canal zone. One morning, in the heart of empire, a noise not unlike that of a rocky waterfall began to grow upon my ear. Louder and louder it swelled as I worked slowly forward. At last I discovered its source. In a lower room of a tenement, an old white-haired Jamaican had fitted up a private school, to which the elite among the darker brethren sent their children. Rather than patronizing the common public schools, Uncle Sam provided free to all zone residents. The old man sat before some twenty wide-eyed children, one of whom stood slouch-shouldered, book in hand, in the center of the room, and at regular intervals of not more than twenty seconds he shouted high above all other noises of the neighborhood you calls that english however you goin learn talk properly like that you tell me far back in the interior of an empire block i came upon an old old negro woman parchment skinned and doddering living alone in a stoop shouldered shanty of boxes and ten cans I don't know how old I is, master, was one of her replies, but I born six years before the collar was discovered. When did you come to Panama? I don't know, but it a long time ago. Before the Americans, perhaps? Oh, long before. The French ain't only just begin to dig. I was ashamed to say how long I been here. Just why was not evident, unless she fancied she should long ago have been made her fortune and left. Is you American? Well, they make and to have done wanting. They make this country civilized. Why, child, before they come, we have all the time here revolutions. I couldn't count to how many revolutions we had, and every day they steal all what we have. To even steal my clothes. I'm so glad for one, the Americans come. 
it was during my empire enumerating that i startled one morning to burst suddenly from the tawdry junk-jumbled rooms of negroes into a bare-floored freshly scrubbed room containing some very clean cots a small table and a hammock and a general air of frankness and simplicity with no attempt to disguise the commonplace at the table sat a spaniard in worn but newly washed working clothes book in hand i sat down and falling unconsciously into the th pronunciation of the castilian began blithely to reel off the questions that had grown so automatic name federico malero check number can you read a little the barest suggestion of amusement in his voice caused me to look up quickly my library he said with a ghost of a weird smile nodding his head slightly toward an unpainted shelf made of pieces of dynamite boxes mine and my roommates the shelf was filled with four real barcelona paper editions of hegel fitch spencer huxley and a half dozen others accustomed to sit in the same company all dog-eared with much reading some ambitious foremen i mused and went on with my queries occupation pico y pala he answered pick and shovel i exclaimed and read those no importa he answered again with his elusive shadow of a smile it doesn't matter and as i rose to leave buenos dias senor and he turned again to his reading i plunged into the jumble of negroes next door putting my questions and setting down the answers without even hearing them my thoughts still back in the clean bare room behind wondering whether i should not have been wiser after all to have ignored the sharp drawn lines and the prejudices of my fellow countrymen and joined the pick and shovel zone world there might have been pay dirt there a few months before i remembered a spanish laborer killed in a dynamite explosion in the cut had turned out to be one of the spain's most celebrated lawyers i recalled that el unico the anarchist spanish weekly published in miraflores contained some crystal clear thinking set forth in a sharp-cut manner that shows a real inside knowledge of the job and the canal workers however little one may agree with its philosophy and methods then it was due to the law of contrast i suppose that the thought of tom my roommate suddenly flashed upon me and i discovered myself chuckling at the picture tom the roughneck to whom all such as federico malero with his pick and shovel were miller silvermen on whom tom looked down from his high perch on his steam shovel as far less worthy of notice than the rock he was clawing out of the hillside how many a silent chuckle and how many a covert sneer must the maleros on the zone indulge in at the pompous airs of some american ostensibly far above them end of chapter two Recording by Mickey Lee Rich